Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Doug Henwood, a longtime left activist, writer, economic analyst. He is a contributing editor at The Nation and also hosts a weekly program on KPFA. He is also a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to go a little bit into your background because I was watching and listening to some of your previous interviews to prepare for today, and I found it interesting that you sort of grew up a socialist, then went to the right, and then came back to socialism. Um, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of how you became politicized? Well, I had an eighth grade history teacher. I went to uh, public high school, uh, public schools in New, in New Jersey, and I had this eighth grade history teacher who otherwise was very undistinguished, kind of a coach type. Uh, but he gave a sympathetic lecture on Marx one day, and I thought, oh, I came home and told my parents I'd become a Marxist, um, <laughs> much to their distress. Uh, but I stayed that way. I read, you know, some Marx, but not, 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 you know, kind of un- unformed adolescent uh, fashion. Uh, and then very late in high school, I became a conservative and it lasted for, um, oh, about a year and a half or so. Um, when I got to Yale, I joined something called the party of the right, which is, it was a very small and nutty, uh, reactionary formation that had uh, several factions, one of which was libertarian, but there were actually some monarchists mixed in with it. Uh, and that lasted uh, into the beginning of my sophomore year, and I got out of that and, uh, and uh, went back to being uh, on the left. So it was like a, an aberration of about a year and a half. It was my form of adolescent rebellion in the early 70s when everyone else was marching in the streets and doing drugs. I was a, a Bill Buckley conservative. Wow, that was going to be my question. What were the years? When, when were you... Uh... You see, so you were getting out of high school in the middle of the 70s? Uh, well, yeah, I graduated from high school in 71, got okay. to Yale, and I was in the party right the year 71, 72. And in those days, there were very, very few conservatives. It was just, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us that were semi-active in the party of the right. Um, and it was funny to me, like, less than 10 years later, to see Ronald Reagan take office basically adhering to a philosophy that uh, we all thought was doomed and pretty much dead uh, in the early 70s. So it was quite a revival, that kind of movement conservatives. Not exactly a revival, since some of it was kind of new, but uh, to see movement conservatism become uh, the the dominant political force in the country uh, 10 years after it had seemed uh, on the verge of death was was a remarkable development uh, to watch. And then, you know, watch uh, the debasements of conservatism that succeeded that. You know, we were very um, intellectually snobbish. snobbish. We thought that uh, part of the problem with the world in those days was standards were just all falling to hell and, you know, Western civilization was going to the dogs and we were going to be uh, the last line of defense against barbarism. And then to see what has happened to the conservative intellectual tradition since, to see the... Uh, the, the idiocies and the stupidities that uh, really dominate it now. It's just, uh, it's, it's remarkable to somebody who went through that period in the early 70s. If you look back, for example, at some of the speeches that Ronald Reagan gave to the Conservative Political Action uh, Conference uh, in the mid-70s, you know, I'm sure somebody wrote them for him, but they were you know, kind of serious efforts at political philosophy. Uh, and compare that to what goes on at CPAC now, and it's just like night and day. Uh, Something very badly happened to uh, <laughs> the American conservative movement, but it became a dominant force. We are a long way from Edmund Burke. Um, <laughs> very. very. We, uh, 
I'm interested. I mean, I didn't live through that period. I was born in 84. And one of the things that strikes me looking back at that history is it's only 11 years from Woodstock to fucking Reagan. That's amazing to me. Oh, yes. Um, because when you're young, you know, you uh, go a remarkable uh, period. The 70s, you know, the 70s are maligned as a very dull period, but they're actually quite lively. Began the decade with a bunch of wildcat strikes. The, Nixon had to call out the National Guard to deliver the mail. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, Reagan was busting the Air Traffic Controllers Union and launching a war on labor. So it's just, an awful lot happened in that 10 years. Where were you at uh, by the time Reagan takes office in 1980? Oh, I was very firmly on the left. I was actually on a business trip. I was working for a small medical publisher uh, in New York in those days. And uh, I got sent on a business trip to Atlanta to present our books at a conference. And uh, it was election night. Um, and I ordered room service and a bottle of wine and thought, oh, this can be fun to watch election returns. And it was over in like 10 minutes. Uh, and I was stunned. Um, so I went up to the revolving restaurant at the top of the Hyatt and just drank heavily to try to deal with my uh, distress at the uh, the election of Reagan. It was just surreal. Um, I was stunned. I took a, a picture of myself in a photo booth at the airport the next morning, and between the um, the drinking of the night before and the despair at Reagan's election, I just looked like hell, because it was just it was so shocking. And I kind of felt the same way when Trump was elected, that same feeling of, of just disbelief and shock that... Uh, this can't be true, uh, and we're headed for some really, really bad times. And both, uh, both prognoses turned out to be correct. What do you think are some of the lessons that can be learned from left activism in the 1980s and 90s? I feel like these are periods that we don't talk about very often, but as someone who got involved with the left around 2006 when I came home from Iraq and joined Iraq Veterans Against the War— you know, I got involved with the anti-war movement at that time in 2006, the only socialist groups around— were like handing out newspapers at the rallies or at local universities. You know, there, there wasn't much of an organized institutional left, uh, at least a socialist left. Um, oh God, no, it's just so different now. Um, you know, I founded my newsletter, uh, in 1986. Uh, and I thought at that point that the Reagan years are going to come to a bad end and people would wake up and there'd be a great revival of the left. And, uh, that just never happened. So it was a very, very lonely times. Uh, if you go to a meeting, it was like, 10 people in some beaten down old room and uh, half the people um, had 10 years connections to reality. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a very dark time. And, uh, you know, I've, to see what happened starting around 2015 uh, with the burning campaign and the, the aftermath uh, to see the growth of a, of a young left um, over the last five years or so has just been beautiful and inspiring to somebody like me who felt uh, really alienated from the whole system. I remember being at a conference with a, a friend of mine um, in, uh, oh, I don't know, probably late 90s sometime, and she turned to me and said, you know, I've been a socialist for my whole life, and I, I'm embarrassed to use the word publicly. And that really captured the, the feeling that one had at the time. You just felt like a freak. Right. What, what kind of projects, because I feel like those of us who did come up in the aughts, uh, we, I think you know, should pay some respect to those who came before us insofar as the people who remained active after the 70s through the 80s and 90s, that sort of paved the ground for a lot of us who came up, you know, during that Bush era. You know, I got exposed to uh, Left Business Observer, uh, Z Communications, various other left websites and, you know, media entities and so forth. And that helped orientate us to some degree, even though it wasn't as established as it is today. I feel like people from that era uh, deserve some credit. 
Well, I felt like we were keeping the flame alive, but it uh, was—it seemed pretty lonely, and uh, it was really hard to. It was really impossible to imagine we'd see anything like uh, we do today with you know a socialist caucus developing the New York State Legislature. It's just—it's impossible to imagine, even ten years ago, something like that happening. Um, one of the things that I did during that period was I, I ran a listserv, uh, f- uh, starting in the late '90s, ran through well. I finally shut it down a little while ago, but it had died out because of social media. It really took over from the, the listserv world. But uh, some of the principles of Jacobin Magazine met each other through that. So I think that uh, I had some catalytic effect on, on a Jacobin project getting going. Um, but that's, that's, you know, it's, that's what we're going to do, just keep alive a flame until uh, that's a, a younger generation in a different time could uh, uh, let that uh, flame uh, burn a little brighter and hotter. Well, let's bring us up to today. We we were involved, of course, in the Bernie campaign in 2015 and 2016. Um, since then, we opened a community center here in Michigan City, Indiana. It's like a community cultural center that we use. Well, prior to COVID, we used it for organizing efforts primarily, but also social and cultural events. Um, and so, you know, Bernie loses the primary in 2020. Of course, all of us were heartbroken on Super Tuesday. Less than a week later, the country shut down. It's covid Biden's the nominee and all the rest. We know sort of the context in which we're in today. Where, where do you see the left going today? It seems to me we have a good project in DSA. Uh, there's great workplace organizing. We follow the work of Jane McAlevey um, and, you know, a lot of union, great union efforts that are happening uh, both near us in Chicago, but also throughout the country. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering what do you make of our position today we have an election coming up. I know you believe it makes sense to strategically vote for Biden, but you have no illusions of what a Biden presidency is going to uh, bring us. So I guess I'm I'm asking, you know, where do you what do you make of where the left is today, and and where do you think we should go from here? Well, uh, I think I have a two part answer to that. One is uh, on the question of Biden. Just um, back in uh, 1968, uh, Gary Wills published a book called Nixon Agonistes about Richard Nixon. One of the points he made in that, which I've thought about ever since, was that one of the reasons the 60s happened was that uh, during the 50s, when Eisenhower was president, all these you know, people, left-wing intellectuals and such, thought, oh, all the problem is just Eisenhower. If we get our guy in there, everything's going to be better. And so they got JFK in there, who was in many ways their kind of guy, you know, serious, cerebral, well-read, um, uh, kind of a sophisticated character. And it turned out that everything still pretty much sucked. So that, that, that disillusionment was then very productive. It uh, caused people to say, well, you know, the system is at stake. Uh, the s- system is at fault, rather. Um, so this is, uh, that's, that's what uh, kind of helped give rise to the, uh, the radicalism of, of the 60s. I think something semi-similar happened in the 90s with Bill Clinton. We saw the rise of the anti-globalization movement that culminated in Seattle in 1999. Um, So that kind of disillusionment, when people get the Democrat after a long period of Republican or conservative rule, and then find that things really haven't changed that much for the better, then maybe they'll... um, be um, moved towards more radical politics, but there's already already now there's a much larger base for that kind of radical politics than there was in you know 1964, or uh, there was in 1998 for sure. So that that's one thing that gives me hope that people will not that a whole lot of people have great expectations for Biden, but you know he's talking about 
appointing Republicans to his cabinet in an effort to be bipartisan. I just, you know, this constant urge to be bipartisan with a Republican party that wants to destroy them just uh, seems suicidal and bizarre to me, but there's just no stopping that impulse. Um, but, but what, um, as marvelous as the Bernie campaigns were, uh, especially the first one and, uh, catalyzing this whole new movement of younger left activists and intellectuals, uh, the presidency is basically the big boy's office. Um, as, uh, you know, as the people at Workers Vanguard used to say, it's the, the, the president of the United States is the chief executive of the world's bourgeoisie. Um, it's really um, the very summit of uh, class power. And they're going to fight for that office. It's really their natural terrain. And so for somebody like Bernie Sanders to contest seriously for that office was remarkable development, but it's a really steep hill to climb. Uh, but what we're seeing now, uh, at least in, in the realm of electoral politics, they're kind of organizing at lower levels in city councils and state legislatures, and to some degree, House of Representatives. Um, that seems to be much more promising for building a long-term movement, um, especially if those electoral movements are linked to non-electoral politics, like union organizing or, or anti-gentrification movements or you know, housing justice movements or anti-police brutality stuff. If we have that kind of uh, two-pronged effort of the electoral side and the non-electoral side really focused on very concrete local issues, but networked nationally, I think that's really a very promising situation. So, you know, now um, we're going to have, I think, four or five socialists in New York State Legislature. The Chicago City Council has, what, five socialists on it. Um, You know, these are not enormous numbers, but they really do begin to make a serious difference. And the fact that the left is now taken seriously as as a political force is just uh, (laughs) striking to me for having been uh, so long in in the wilderness. Um, so, yeah, that stuff, I think, is, is extremely promising, and that really seems to be where the action is. Uh, I just noticed that there's an article uh, in, on pl- the Politico website, the Politico New York website, about what's happening with the New York State Nurses Association, which had been a very uh, sleepy, orthodox union. Uh, and then some DSA people came in and decided to uh, try to shake things up, uh, not be a rubber stamp for the governor anymore, but also to... Uh, to do things that the public might support, like supporting um, 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 staffing ratios to make sure that there are enough nurses per patient, um, which you'd think would be very popular with the public, but not necessarily popular with the governor or the uh, the hospital industry. So now this is provoking a great uh, bit of struggle within the union, but it's just really inspiring to see um, that kind of leadership um, light a fire under what had been a very um, um, weak and, and, and brain-dead uh, uh, labor union. So I think it, we, we have a lot of uh, potential there in, in other places around the country. I know that a lot of DSA people are getting involved uh, in various uh, occupations in order to uh, uh, be at strategic locations in the economy, but also to uh, organize and educate. Um, that, that sort of thing strikes me as extremely promising as well. So, yeah, all that union work, uh, uh, issue work, plus um, electoral um, organizing uh, there seems to be a lot of promise in that. And uh, as DSA continues to grow, uh, somewhat surprisingly perhaps, but uh, I think there's there's a great deal of promise. Uh, God knows what happens if Trump gets reelected and, you know, right. the white armed white supremacists go uh, on a rampage. Although um, <laughs> I guess they could also go on a rampage if, if Trump loses. Um, but, you know, um, there is 
some degree of hope there. And, you know, something like the Green New Deal, given this, the, the, the combination of the health crisis we're in, the economic crisis we're in, uh, something like the Green New Deal no longer seems fanciful to me. It seems like very practical politics. Yeah. Yeah. And we're hearing that from people who aren't you know, heavy into left politics, living in Northwest Indiana, I I will admit that I was not in the least bit surprised at Donald Trump's victory in 2016, not because I think we had any kind of special insight, but it was one of the first times that I had allowed my anecdotal experiences to really color what I was feeling about an election. Um, And living around Michigan, Wisconsin, having friends in Minnesota, Ohio, et cetera, it seemed very clear to us that uh, Trump was far more popular than a lot of left commentators gave him sort of credit for during the primary. And, of course, a lot of the liberal commentators who couldn't even imagine uh, the amount of people who supported him. Does it feel different to you this time around? it, It feels fundamentally different to me this time around. In fact, almost all of the people who were sort of the apolitical voters, you know, people who are like, fuck the system, everything sucks, I'm going to show up and vote for Trump because I hate Hillary Clinton. Those people this time around are either not voting or they're voting for Biden. Most of the apolitical people I know are voting for Biden instead of sitting on the sidelines. And most of the leftists I know who otherwise wouldn't vote in previous elections are voting for Biden. So all of that seems promising to me. Yeah, that's encouraging. Because, uh, well, you know, look back in 2016, Trump was a great way to flip the bird to the system. But yep. now he is the system and he really made a big mess of things. So it's, yep. it seems to be a very different environment for him to run for re-election than it did the first time. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, here we've been ravaged by deindustrialization, neoliberalism. I mean, we used to have 120,000 union steelworking jobs stretching from the south side of Chicago to South Bend, Indiana. And today we have a little less than 10,000. Um, you know, and that's, yeah, and he didn't bring it back like he promised. That's right. And that there's a lot of steel workers in the region who recognize that, you know, I think some of them maybe not so vocally and publicly, but I, you know, the, to some degree, there's this sense that they've been had. Um, and you know, that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, he is a very accomplished con artist <laughs> Four decade career as a con artist. That was like the ongoing conversation with my friends in the mill, you know, or the guys who work at the factories that still remain. I'd be like, come on, like, you guys know this guy's never had a callus on his hand in his whole fucking life. You know, it's just like trying to talk to them about like, if you saw this guy at the bar, you'd probably get in a fight with him. You know, you wouldn't be voting for him. It's like those kind of conversations I've actually found are much more useful than hitting them with like, hey, you know, Trump's tax plan is bad. You know, yeah, like yeah. that, that actually resonates with these guys more than the other stuff. Um, well, that's good. One of the things yeah, I'm, I'm here in the bubble of Brooklyn, so I don't get to <laughs> speak with a lot of people like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we interviewed Liza last month and we were kind of joking about that. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to get back to, because I think the point you make is really important, and that is I've been also surprised at the level of sophistication on the left that exists today, all the way from how we approach electoral politics. In other words, most of the younger people that are now coming up uh, that we're working with, they don't even bother with the Green Party. Whereas 10, 15 years ago when I was getting involved, there was still this discussion about, you know, should we go with the Greens? If there's electoral efforts, should we support the Greens? It's like, to me, thankfully, and I have friends in the Green Party, they're decent, nice people. Um, but I, I, I feel like that project is dead. And, and the sooner we just come to the realization that that's not an option, the better off we'll be. Well, yeah, now they've been around for what? Well, I guess it's kind of hard to date when they began because they've gone through so many formations. But the uh, you know, go back to 1995 uh, or so, uh, 25 years, and they've gone nowhere. The peak vote year for president was uh, uh, Nader in 2000, which 
you know, brought perpetual um, uh, stain on, on, on the Green Party for for that uh, electoral result. Right. I don't believe that was Nader's fault at Bush won, but still a lot of people think that. But that was their peak 20 years ago, and they've never been able to build anything from that. I think the whole project is just doomed. Part of the problem is U.S. electoral law. It makes it really, really difficult for a third party to establish itself. And the way the DSA people have been using the Democratic Party uh, ballot line, I think it's been very creative uh, and thoughtful. Um, just run the primaries, um, but really don't let the party take you over. Don't uh, act like you're a member of the party. Just uh, take advantage of them, and maybe someday we can throw them away. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the level of sophistication with regard to workplace organizing as well. I just spoke to a local organizer uh, yesterday on the phone. He's being furloughed. He works for Amtrak. And he's wondering, you know, where should I go to work next? And his sort of number one consideration is what makes what workplace makes the most what sector makes the most sense uh, for me to join to uh, organize? You know, so he's thinking Amazon. Um, he's thinking, you know, the various other industries that are in the region, what, which industries need to be organized. That's a level of sophistication that definitely did not exist when I first got involved. Oh yeah. I think it's extremely impressive to me. I mean, my, my friends and colleagues in the Brooklyn chapter of DSA, you know, very few of them are over 35. Uh, but the level of wisdom, um, and the collegiality, I mean, the culture of it is just all really nice. You know, for someone who was used to the left in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s, when we're all really mean to each other, we thought we were like mini Lenins who could just have a really sharp tongue and denounce our opponents and be really clever. Uh, you know, it's really, it's nice to see people who treat each other in a comradely fashion for a change. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the only thing I'll say is that I, I do think some of the witty sniping is sometimes fun. Um, and oh yeah, I'm not going to give that up entirely, but, uh, <laughs> it used to be so mean, um, and not, not in a fun way. It was just like, right. everybody's just so mean to each other. Uh, and you know, to, to an older person, some of the rituals, uh, that, uh, DSA people go through, remember at the convention last year, there was people had a lot of fun with the, the twinkling and, and, um, the language policing. And I can understand why people find that annoying or silly, but their underlying impulse to treat each other well um, is something that um, really moves me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's something that I think resonates with people who aren't on the left that we're trying to bring in. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I think that that vibe, the culture, what the, the initial sense people get when they walk through the door, Hey, are these cool people that I might not, yeah, I know it sounds silly because we used to say this about George W. Bush, you know, is this somebody you'd want to have a beer with? But I do think that there's some, there is some truth to that when it comes to activism, that if people come into organizing spaces and they, they get that vibe that, oh man, these people are kind of shitty to each other. They're not really nice. They're not fun to hang out with. It, it's just an impediment to our organizing. Yeah, as my late friend Bob Fitch used to say, socialism must be social. <laughs> I think a lot of people forget that part. <laughs> So, so here we are today, the elections in two weeks. It seems to me that if Biden, or it looks like he'll get elected, but we, we don't know for sure, of course. Let's say he is elected. We could go through both scenarios. Um, it seems to me, and I'm wondering if you agree with this, that his leash and the honeymoon period is going to be a lot different than it was for Barack Obama in 2008. Then, in fact, a lot of people, as the polls show, are simply voting for Joe Biden out of a sense of, you know, necessity to get rid of Trump. But there's not all of this great hope wrapped up in the Biden campaign. And it would seem to me that if indeed he gets elected, uh, it's not going to take a long period of time before people go, wait a minute, 
we need massive programs to deal with the situation that we're in. He's not necessarily offering the kind of programs we need. There seems to me that there's going to be a pushback a lot quicker than there was with Obama in office. Do you think so? Oh, I think that's absolutely true because, well, Obama was elected with a whole lot of expectations. You know, we're in the midst of this economic crisis. We're um, exhausted by all the wars and stupidities and brutalities of the Bush era. So people voted for Obama thinking they were going to get a more peaceful and more egalitarian world. And, you know, the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress uh, for the first two years of his presidency, and they really didn't do much. The initial stimulus bill was okay, but it was certainly short of what was necessary. Uh, but people's expectations out of Obama were very high, and uh, th- then he eventually dashed them rather quickly. Well, it's like only, only three or four months into his presidency, and either he or somebody in his administration called up uh, the New York Times columnist David Brooks and started talking about how they wanted to, when the crisis was over, they wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare. Uh, so they were really um, uh, not at all trying to pull some kind of you know, second coming of FDR with, with, with that administration, even though they control both houses of Congress, they could have. They could have had a very ambitious agenda uh, with a degree of presidential leadership. Um, there could have been a whole lot of good stuff that went down uh, in the early Obama years, and it didn't. Uh, and so people's expectations were dashed. Now, I remember talking to uh, uh, the, the, one of the organizers of the Black Youth Project in Chicago, who said that a lot of uh, people who organized for um, his group um, cut their teeth on the Obama campaign, and their disillusionment uh, is with that is what turned them to more radical politics. So you know, that, that productive quality of disillusionment with Democrats, I think, is a, is a repeating theme in <laughs> American politics over the last few decades. Um, but you know, people, people's expectations are Biden are low. I mean, that's in every sense. You know, he goes into a debate, and as long as he doesn't piss on himself, people think it's a success. Uh, and Trump has now, you know, ratcheted down the expectations for Biden's debate performances. Uh, so even in the mainstream, he's got very low expectations, and certainly nobody in the left uh, has very high expectations for what uh, Biden is going to do. Um, so... I think there, there's not going to be that same honeymoon period. Now, I imagine there's going to be a lot among mainstream Democrats, a lot of relief uh, that assuming Biden wins, we'll have to offer that caveat many times, <laughs> but there will be a great deal of relief to be rid of Trump. But I know I will feel that, you know, that the, the insanity of the last three and a half, four years, um, it's been wearing people down on a very personal level. I mean, the combination of Trump's uh, idiocy and, and, and violence and uh, um, nastiness with, you know, the COVID epidemic and all the social isolation that's come with that and the unemployment uh, that's come with that. And people are really in, you know, emotionally raw. Um, it, and I, you know, I can't imagine, I can't remember another time when the quality of politics influenced people's personal lives on such a powerful level. Uh, so there will be some relief that Trump is gone. But on the other hand, you know, if Biden comes in and appoints uh, some of these names that have been floating around, the Republican names have been floating around to his cabinet, there will be a lot of really annoyed people, even fairly, you know, mainstream liberal Democrats. That's not what they want. They don't want Republicans in office, not even, you know, the good never-Trump Republicans. They, they want uh, things to go in a different direction. And there is a left now um, within the Democratic Party or adjacent to the Democratic Party uh, to act as a 
pressure force that just didn't exist in the early Obama years. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, I think, a very, very different thing. And even Biden, despite his um, instinctive uh, conservatism or caution, has um, at least partly endorsed a Green New Deal. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good thing. He seems to understand that there has to be some kind of ambitious spending and investment program, some degree of redistribution, um, some income support for people at the lower end of the, of the income ladder. So, I mean, he does have some good instincts in that direction. Uh, but uh, it's going to take an awful lot of pressure to uh, um, cause him to fight for those things, but also to get him to open up to other possibilities as well. What do you think the left's orientation to a Biden president, to a potential Biden presidency would be? So let me just break this down real quick. I would like to get your thoughts on this. So on the one hand, if Biden gets into office, we can expect that he's going to propose the legislation that you mentioned, some of them quasi-redistributionists. There's going to be uh, proposed tax uh, increases. There's going to be infrastructure bills. So on the one hand, we're going to need a left unions, DSA, uh, organi- different organizations that pressure Democrats to pass the existing legislation that Biden proposes. But we're going to want that legislation to be even better than it is. So we're going to be pressuring them to to have even more robust uh, poli- uh, policies. Uh, but at the same time, if we don't get those, we're going to at least want him to pass even milquetoast reformist legislation. While that's happening, my assumption would be that we're going to have Trump's base uh, still out there sort of in like a Tea Party 2.0 mode where they're going to be attacking Biden and the Democrats with all kinds of baseless, crazy claims. Um, and perhaps even, I don't know, engaging in acts of domestic terrorism. So I feel like the left is in this very tricky position of having to critique Biden um, having to support certain legislation that he proposes that will want passed, but that will be inadequate, but then also sort of have a position vis-a-vis the state where we, you know, it's like very clear that the left is opposed to this sort of right-wing um, violence and so forth. That seems like a, you know, we're going to have to like chew gum, walk and ride a bike at the same time. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's actually, that's quite true. Um, uh and of course, much depends upon whether Mitch McConnell is still running the Senate. We don't know it, but if if there's somehow a Democratic Senate, then that will change the calculus uh, significantly. But then the Democrats are also, or at least many Democrats, are capable of being rather conservative themselves. So yeah, you're going to see a lot of um, questioning: Is this too ambitious? Is this too expensive? You know, going here, uh, should we think about cutting entitlements? All that stuff is going to come back again. Yeah. Uh, so we have to fight that within the Democratic Party. I mean, the more conservative parts of the Democratic Party. Uh, at the same time, um, you're right that you know the the, uh, the the reactionaries are going to be on the march. They're going to be completely uh, um, up in arms about any slight reformist tendencies that the Biden administration shows. Uh, there's always the risk that you know, the, the armed lunatics will start killing people. Uh, they they. Uh, right-wing terrorism. I mean, these are all very, very serious threats. Uh, and I alternate between thinking that a Trump defeat would deflate them and then retreat for a while, or thinking that a Trump defeat would inflame them and they just go on the march. I don't know which it's going to be. Um, and a lot of you know, a lot of people on the left now are actually <laughs> taking up gun training. Um, and uh, I have to say. Um, yeah. I'm not personally fond of guns. I don't own any. I don't. Uh, I'm not likely to. I'm not likely to shoot anything. But 
I don't know. I can't say I'm against uh, the Socialist Rifle Association training people how to, to use firearms. It's a, it's a tough time, and uh, a little self-defense might be in order. I'm very split on the issue as a combat veteran, as someone who's not a pacifist, uh, as someone who, you know, through the Bush era and the the Obama era, I remember being in left circles, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, just different organizing efforts over the years, environmental activism and so forth, where activists would bring this up, you know, and, and in the past, it always seemed to me to be like a sort of navel gazing exercise about, you know, potential realities that could, we could, you know, be visited upon us in the future. But today, it is a legitimate conversation because there are millions of people around the country who are buying weapons for the first time. And for the first time in our experience, you know, we have left-wing friends who are actively sort of arming themselves and posturing in this way. I do think that we need to finally have a, a, a nuanced, serious discussion about it. But I do get where I get worried by both sides. I mean, the side that says there's no place for this whatsoever worries me. And then the side that sort of fetishizes weapons and uh, this radical militant posturing also worries me because I've been around extreme violence. And, you know, I, I think I have some knowledge of what it takes to have a uh, organized group of people operating with weapons. And that's in the military where, you know, you're living with these people and training with them day after day. And even then it's a fucking disaster. Yeah, no, I, compl- I hear you. I completely agree. It's 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 dangerous stuff. But on the other hand, there really are some terrifying um, folks in the right, white supremacists and Nazis, and uh, you know, um, I don't know what to do about them. It's not, and we, I don't think we can rely on the, the cops to take care of them because the cops are often very sympathetic with them. Uh, there was an article in Harper's, I don't know, six eight months ago by James Pogue. Uh, I interviewed him on my radio show um, uh, about the Socialist Rifle Association. Uh, and one of the points he makes is that in contrast with the right-wing uh, bearers of arms and the NRA, which have a very individualistic view of weaponry, it's all about defending yourself and your family, uh, their uh, Socialist Rifle Association has a, a much more collective notion of self-defense, uh, mm-hmm. and they're trying to uh, create a kind of you know, comradeliness uh, among uh, people who are undergoing this training, uh, which is a different culture from the right-wing gun culture, but still, I'm you know I don't want to see people get blown away. That stuff uh, really makes me uncomfortable. I'm not a pacifist by any means, but I do prefer a peaceful life to a violent one. Yeah, no, same here. And and I think you know those of us who are veterans who are firmly on the left and have been for a while, I think we do have some some knowledge, some expertise, some advice. And you know I've heard from friends in the Pacific Northwest who've been involved in these different sort of uh, efforts and it helps when they have some solid left-wing veterans around. I I think that's a role that, you know, any left-wing veteran who may be listening to this, if you don't see a place for yourself within the movement, that might be a place for you within the movement. Yeah. You know, and so much of right-wing discourse is about teasing leftists or mocking them for not being manly enough, you know, and uh, I guess it's just some pretty dangerous territory. Um, Whether insofar as the you know the the, man, the previous manliness through firing weapons, um, that's that's uncomfortable. But on the other hand, it's also nice to have some people who are competent in that realm. Yeah, and I, I guess this to me gets back to like when people on the left would say things like uh, we should reach out to Trump supporters. This this kind of all to me is wrapped up in the same concept of like people being disorganized in American political society. So in other words, when people would say to us, oh, you live in Northwest Indiana, what's your success been like reaching out to Trump supporters? And we're like, 
where are they? Like what they exist here. Yes. They live in subdivisions disproportionately. Um, but there is no local Trump organization. Most of the local Trump supporters don't even interact with the local Republican party. So it's not like there's an entity that you can, even in places that would be considered quote unquote Trump country, there's no organized entity for us to reach out to. So on the one hand, I am worried about right wing violence but I do think that there's a tendency on the left to sort of overblow the organizational capacity of the existing right-wing groups. Um, yeah, you know, you see these demonstrations every now and then. They, they call out their forces and they get outnumbered four to one by counter-demonstrators. Right. <laughs> I really do wonder how populous they are. And that's the case in Northwest Indiana, Doug. Like we've had, during the course of the last four months, we've had Black Lives Matter protests all over Northwest Indiana with some of the highest uh, levels of participation that the state of Indiana has ever seen uh, for any kind of mobilization. Um, And then the right wingers, the Trump supporters tried to hold their rallies. And again, you know, maybe a couple dozen people carrying weapons on the street corner, um, very different response. And that's in Northwest Indiana. And I I just, I know again, that's anecdotal, but I I just can't emphasize this enough for my uh, left wing progressive friends on the coast who I think, see what's happening throughout the country and, and go, holy shit, like, are there tens of millions of these Trump people with guns that are organized? And I, I mean, from my perspective, the answer to that is no. They seem far more disorganized uh, than even the left is in some ways. Well, you know, I think, uh, I'm sure you will not be surprised to learn that people on the coast hear the word Indiana and they think it's just, you know, benighted yahoos right. running around. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, you know, obviously it's not. <laughs> Everything is much more complicated <laughs> than that. But it's also really good to hear stories like this for people on the coast to hear stories about uh, the numbers of people who, uh, you know, who don't live up to that that stereotype of you know benighted yahoos. There are really a lot of good people uh, trying to do good things, and they don't get covered, they don't get noticed, um, but they're out there, and uh, we should um, honor and admire them for it. Well, it's one of the reasons why we tried to plant our flag here in Michigan City. After 2016, you know, Sergio and I, uh, the co-founder of the space, Sergio Kochergan, we we met each other in the Marine Corps. We, you know, been best friends ever since and have been involved with different left projects since we got out. And after the 2016 election, it also seemed clear to us uh, that there needed to be like an infrastructure for the left that, you know, you had Jacobin, you had the DSA, but that we needed actual spaces, that there weren't the union halls and community centers that existed during the 1960s or the 1930s where people could come and gather, create community, develop political plans, get to know each other. And we also figured why not do that in a place like Northwest Indiana? Of course, this is where I graduated high school, so I do have roots here. Um, but after 2016, it's, it seemed clear to us that if you just allow portions of this country to go, uh, if the left doesn't spend any kind of resources uh, or put any kind of people in these areas, that these areas, the way that I look at it, Doug, living here, this area can go one way or the other. In 2008, it went for Obama for the first time in 44 years since 1964. It was the first time Indiana went blue. Uh, and then after right-to-work legislation, uh, Citizens United, gerrymandering, and all the rest. We haven't went blue since, and we won't in 2020. But the way that I look at the, the population in a state like this, it can go one way or the other, and all of it is contingent upon what we do or don't do. So if we're in these communities organizing, there's a chance we can flip places like Iowa, uh, Kentucky, Indiana, et cetera. But if we're not there putting in the work, it's not going to happen organically. Um, yeah, I mean, 
the system has not been good to people who live in these these states. I mean, it's people uh, they've just been chewed up and and, and ignored by uh, by the by the powers that be. And uh, for some reason, they you know the people um, who have been left behind uh, somehow um, feel a little bit too warmly towards some of the people who've abused them. It seems sometimes. But uh, if there's organizing work going on and education work going on, uh, I could really turn that around because there seems to be a lot of potential there. Yeah, yeah, there is. Our challenge remains that the majority of people, um, you know, they're very cynical. So it's not that the majority of people where we live are either uh, left or right. It's the majority of people where we live are totally disenchanted with the system. They've been shit on for 30 years, deindustrialization, opioid addictions. Just in our city, uh, you know, 55% of people, according to the United Way, can't even make ends meet. You know, so in a city of 30,000 people in Michigan City, one third of the city's black. You know, you got... Uh, the east and the west side of the city is falling apart. You've got a maximum security prison where people sit on death row. You've got a coal-fired power plant that sits on the north side of town. And you've got a, a casino that was brought in in 1998 to uh, make up for the revenue that was lost because of all the tax cuts. So, I mean, a, pl- a place yeah. like this is just... When people come here from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, my friends from overseas who have visited, they, they seriously stop, Doug, and they just go, what the fuck, man? They're like, what is going on here? We had no idea that places uh, look like this in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, for somebody like me, you know, uh, driving to upstate New York, it's a very similar experience. You know, we, we down here around New York City area, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves in being rather cosmopolitan. But, you know, you drive up into a place like Geneva, New York, uh, it's like only 200 miles north, uh, northwest of here. Uh, you've got people with roofs that are uh, taped together with duct tape. Um, you know, it's like just a, it's just like Appalachian poverty levels um, in upstate New York. Um, just you know, 200 miles from the big uh, urban epicenter here. Um, it's uh, the country is just so uh, polarized, but and so much of it is just falling apart socially and physically. Yeah, yeah, it is, and that's one of the reasons why. Bernie's campaign resonated, excuse me, with so many people in a place like Indiana. One of the reasons why we put a disproportionate, we agree with your political analysis, Doug, that we have to start at the bottom. But one of the reasons why, because the electoral situation is so fucked up in a place like Indiana, one of the reason why a lot of leftist progressives put so much weight behind a Bernie campaign, and and he won this state in 2016 against uh, Clinton, uh, and he would have won the state against Biden if the race would have continued but it's because a lot of us see that without major state programs, federal programs, that at the state, county, municipal level in a place like Indiana with trifecta Republican control, we're fucked forever. So if we don't, oh, have, yeah. like if we I don't totally get, you know, if we don't get people at the federal level to start implementing these programs, you know, and I agree with your, your strategic sort of approach that this is a long game uh, to change the legislature at the state level. Uh, or how we interact with the Democratic Party. But, you know, that was one of the reasons why we supported the Bernie campaign so much. Yeah, he's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It was something about uh, the moment, but also him. I mean, he's just such a phenomenal character. Uh, They don't make many like him. No, the last question I have for you, I wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, socialism. I know this is a big topic, and maybe in the future we could have you on to talk about it even more at length. But I know Jacobin... Others have been having these series uh, discussions and workshops that I think are really helpful, um, sort of, you know, defining socialism, how you would define it. 
I know that's a big, broad question to end the the conversation on, but I, I am interested in sort of what is the, is there like a, do you think it's important for us to define the kind of socialism uh, that we're promoting, that we're fighting for, that we're organizing for? Do you think that's something that sort of happens through the process and that you sort of lay out like, here's the basic principles of what we want. We're never maybe going to get exactly what we want, but let's move toward these things and let's redefine them, re you know, revisit them as we move on with our work. Yeah, that is a big question. Um, you know, I would say if I had to just give a, a sentence or two uh, definition, I would say it's just, we're, try, we're we're looking for a system uh, which organizes economic and social resources to make people um, happier, healthier, and more secure, uh, and uh, not. Uh, uh, not in accordance with uh, whatever is the most profitable uh, for for the owning class. Uh, just uh, collective use of resources for the betterment of all, uh, and reducing the amount of insecurity in people's lives. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to reduce that to zero because life is always going to be precarious and a little bit, <laughs> little bit difficult. But uh, you know, just wanted to make it um, as, as as just and, and humane um, and as peaceful and, and uh, collegial as possible. I mean, this, you know, there's another you know, aspect to it. Like we're all so alienated from each other. People feel like they just have to be self-reliant. Uh, if, if, if you can't find a job, it's your fault. You know, and there's just it's like this idea that if you're not succeeding in life, you're, there's something wrong with you. Uh, we need a much, you know, much more sense of human solidarity. That was one of the beautiful things. It was just a little over a year ago when the Bernie AOC, um, event in, in Queens where, uh, Bernie's, you know, um, are you willing to fight for somebody you don't know? Uh, you know, that whole not me, us, this, this, some, we're, we're just such atomized individuals in so many ways, like just articulating a much more collective notion of responsibility to each other uh, in connection with each other, I think is, is important as just defining the material side of it. But, you know, and there's, there's a short term, um, you know, we're talking about um, certain things the state can do to make people's lives better. You know, Medicare for all, uh, free college tuition, um, um, more housing support, you know, income support when people lose their jobs. Um, uh, and then uh, the important um, you know, aspects of dealing with the climate crisis, you know, the Green New Deal, um, you know, the, the, the two sides of the Green New Deal, the New Deal side, which is you know, the public investment, uh, the redistribution of social agenda, but also uh, the green side um, in uh, creating uh, an economic and an energy system that will be sustainable for the really long term. Um, so that, that, those kinds of things are, things are the things I would emphasize in practical terms. We want to be able to come up with practical ways that could make people's lives better. Um, and if we, we can talk about our long-term goals of, you know, solidarity and, and collective allocation of resources and all those sorts of things that socialists have traditionally talked about. But we also want to be able to offer people some things in the short term um, or medium term that will make their lives better. Uh, and Medicare for all would certainly do that. Um, uh, income support for the unemployed would certainly do that. Look what that you know, that $600 supplemental unemployment benefit that lasted for a couple of months make or break made such people. an enormous difference in so many people's lives. Um, and if we could have something like that on a more permanent basis, that would be just, you know, and people have that experience now. Millions of people drew those benefits and then had them taken away. Uh, and say, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, a good government program can do. It can make your life better in a very material, immediate way. The numbers show that the population is on our side. I just watched a report this morning. I think it's upwards of 
55, 60% of Republicans want the uh, $2 trillion stimulus package passed. And it seems... Yeah, I mean, there are people who understand it's just really, really needed. Um, they're just, you know, you see all these numbers about the the, uh, the job market recovery and recovering and we're going to get a GDP report in a couple of days. It's going to show a very strong rebound in the third quarter, but it just doesn't speak to people's lives. I mean, there's still an awful lot of insecurity, unemployment, uh, anxiety about making um, ends meet. Uh, there's going to be a wave of evictions coming in the coming months. Um, so there's, yeah, we still need really bold gestures, but we also need, in addition to the the kinds of money that's going to come out of, of a stimulus program, real investment. You know, so much of the country is just falling to pieces, uh, and we need to, uh, you know, rebuild the schools, rebuild all the, the the public infrastructure, have a transportation system that won't kill us. Um, so in addition to all those kinds of short-term gestures, you know, we need uh, the big long-term stuff too. Yeah. And the people, I'll just end by saying the people who constantly ask, what is it that could bring some of these Trump supporters or people who are on the fence over to our side? It's major government programs that they can see have an impact in their lives. So I don't think shaming people. I don't think making fun of people. I don't think talking shit to people is going to help our cause. Although sometimes that stuff is fun. I think the only way, if you're really serious about bringing some of these people from places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, et cetera, into the fold, it's going to be through those big programs that make a difference in their lives. Oh, absolutely. And the right understands that. That's why they, they object to even the slightest concession, um, even the, you know, the slightest program. This is why the Republicans don't want to, uh, at least most of the congressional Republicans, want a very small uh, bailout package because they understand how popular this stuff is and how it only creates a demand for more. And they don't want to uh, get going down that slippery slope. That's right. Well, hey, Doug, I know we've taken an hour of your time already. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's great talking to you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, hopefully okay. we'll talk again in the future. Anytime. All, All right. right. Take care. All right, bye. You've been listening to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below, also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.